Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Back in New York City after a much-needed and well-deserved vacation out you to... You had a sort of Canadian cadence there. Well, that, that does work, being that we went to Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah. Why do you keep talking like Nardwar? We went... Because <laughs> we went to his hometown. We were up there. You know what's funny? Is that, yeah, you have the occasional person, like the border guard, who was like pretty canadian you know he was very canadian yeah you get the a and you get like different uh inflections and oh yeah yeah (laughs) but there was one morning when we went to get breakfast and the spot didn't open for another 10 minutes so we were walking around and there was this nice view of the water and we walked over and we're on the sidewalk we're moving forward and all of a sudden this guy jumps out of a police car and throws his hands up. And this guy couldn't have been more Canadian if he tried. He was like straight out of like Mike Myers central casting. He was like, hey, excuse me, folks. Would you mind if yeah. you cross the street? Pardon? Yeah. It, yeah. Because there was a partially downed street, street lamp. lamp. Yeah. And this dude was like the most cautious, the most careful. And <laughs> we're like, uh, all right. Like, yeah. <laughs> if this was New York City, that would never happen. This guy's sole purpose was to watch this street lamp and make sure it didn't get within 10 feet of the nearest pedestrian. (laughs) Thank you. So we went up to Vancouver. We went up to Seattle. What'd you like about the cities? First of all, the food was amazing in both cities. Yep. You know, fish, Asian food. Yeah. I did not enjoy the rain. You did not enjoy the rain. No. It (laughs) it rained constantly. You did know we were going to get into, you know, some inclement weather going up there, right? Yeah, but I didn't think it would be all the time. (laughs) I didn't think that it would be raining all It's pretty much the time. what those cities are known for. Yes, but it was <laughs> constant. It was just like, we didn't see the sun for, I don't know, eight days. <laughs> Wait, so it was exactly like doing the 12 days of podcasts. Yes, I hadn't seen the sun for all of December. Uh, I really like those cities. I was not expecting to walk into different stores and have people recognize us right away. Shout out to Nico up at Roden Gray in Vancouver and shout out to Orlando down at Likelihood in Seattle. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we walk into Roden Gray and we get to the top of the stairs and Nico says very nice things about us, loves our podcast, loves our brand, everything about it. Great dude. Really nice. A good Canadian boy. Yes. And immediately says, hey, by the way, our store it's Boxing Week up here in Canada, and the whole run of the store, everything's like half off. Which, by the way, very appealing. Very appealing. We're going to, you know, we don't have any room in our suitcases, but we're going to take all of this stuff back to New York. Get it across the border, sell it for double the price. Kill it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are no Boxing Day <laughs> sales here in America. So he says, here, just go check some stuff out. You're going to love it. You're going to you know, get these crazy deals. I say, great. I walk over to, I walk downstairs. I see a Don C, a just Don jacket. By the way, stunning. Stunning jacket. Yeah. I pull open the tag. It says $2,000. I say, nope. <laughs> Jeff, 50% off though. Yeah. So that's $1,000 just burning in my pocket. Canadian dollars, Jeff. <laughs> oh, so what? eight fifty. <laughs> I guess it's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good deal. If I wanted to go to Grailed or something. If it's not too late. Yeah. If it's not too late, Nico, yeah, Nico, get in touch with us. Save that Don C jacket. 
it was pretty great. Um, so yeah, thank you to Nico for mm-hmm. recognizing us. Yes, and thinking that we could afford anything in that store. Very very flattering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the coastline. We went up to Whistler. The the coastline is just stunning. Yeah, it looks like Hawaii. It except is... if Hawaii was cold <laughs> and rainy. Like, but it is there were, beautiful. There were some nice days in there, Jeff. It is beautiful. But it's also so cold and so rainy. We got to see our guy Jay Worthy up in Vancouver. We yeah, got to well, see. Yeah. Well, okay. So before we get into all that, yeah. When we were crossing the border, yes. the border agent was like, "You know, who uh, who are you going to see in Canada?" We're like, literally nobody. Yeah, we're, we're not going to see anybody. I texted Jay Worthy for some Vancouver recommendations, and Jay Worthy says, "I'm in town. Let's hang out, <laughs> guys." I just don't want the border agent Mark or whatever his name is. <laughs> to be listening and be like oh those rascals yeah those you, americans you, you just admitted that you're gonna of... take back the don c jacket and sell it for twice the price <laughs> <laughs> if mark is listening uh shout out to to jake one who we saw in seattle we had a great time up in the pacific northwest can't wait to go back hopefully during the sunny months mm-hmm. <laughs> we did choose to go is up there, there a sunny month? at the end of december the beginning of january when is non-rainy season yeah. i'll go up there then yeah <laughs> That's what we're looking forward to. And we're looking forward to a great 2020, Jeff. Today is the first podcast of the new year. And who is on the podcast today? I'm sorry. You sound so Canadian throughout this entire <laughs> thing. I really can't get it out of my head. Like before you were saying washroom. Yeah, washroom. Like, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, we have Ryan Leslie on the podcast. Ryan Leslie is on the podcast today. Great conversation. Great guy. The most SAT worthy words I think I've ever spoken or heard on one of our podcasts. That is true. Also, am I speaking like a Canadian now I, too? I, I think so. The second podcast guest mm-hmm. to have an affiliation with Suriname. That Shout is out very true. To Shout Shahendra. out to Shahendra. Yeah. So, uh, Ryan, we talked about obviously his music. We talked about his tech. We talked about his his whole journey growing up uh, with two parents who were devoted to the Salvation Army, to moving around a ton as a child. And going to Harvard and uh, really navigating his whole life with uh, dignity and uh, a lot of talent. So it was a fun podcast to to get into. And Jeff, because we were on vacation and because we care so much, we recorded this episode just an hour ago. So shout out to everybody who has been checking in. Shout out to everybody who caught up on the 12 Days of Podcast if you haven't. Podcasts don't go bad. You can always go back and listen to them. Go subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm talking about YouTube. I'm talking about Spotify. I'm talking about Overcast. Overcast. Big, Shout out to our guy, Orlando. Yeah, big Overcast guys over here. <laughs> Acast, CastBox, all the casts. <laughs> Love Jeff, them all. When do you want to get into this cast? Right now. So you're going to be our 298th episode. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So don't fuck it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Ain't Nothing to Cut My Bitch Off, a.k.a. ASPCA. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Melt the Block, a.k.a. Fondue. And it's Ryan Leslie, <laughs> a.k.a. The Slasher. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Rapper slash R&B slash technology CEO slash Harvard grad slash Grammy nominated. Woo. Often imitated, never duplicated. Yes, yeah, your third favorite podcast to waste time with it's the real. Ryan, what's happening? All is good, man. All is good. We 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 in here top of the year, man. That's yeah, right, I yo. Like we that. like to set this off in the right way, and yeah. um, you know, we we can really relate to you on a whole bunch of levels, but especially independence. Yeah. And also being first through the door. Can mm-hmm. you talk about how much harder it is to be the first one through the door as opposed to being like the third, fourth, fifth person through the door? Sometimes 
the door has to actually be cut through the wall. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So being first means that you actually have to have a concept of how much of the wall needs to be cut to even fit yourself through. And then once you actually get through the door, it's about not only looking forward, but also making sure that you you create space so that people who are different shapes and sizes that come behind you on that same pathway can still make it through. So I think that, uh, I think I love the challenge of being first through the door because also that means that uh, the, the, the unknown, which most people are afraid of, I'm able to go and face head on, you know, and uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm able to also by nature, the fact that, you know, I'm definitely not a, you know, the rock size character that people can say, hey, look, here's a guy that just, you know, he didn't come from from, you know, any kind of like uh, super hardship. He's a Harvard grad that just figured out how to get through. So me, if I got the type of hustle that got me out of my hood or got me out of whatever situation I was in, of course I can go down this innovative pathway and make a difference. For sure. But you're making it sound like, you know, like your life was already like set up. Like you, you got yourself into Harvard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I would say that uh, I, I really got to give it up to my father. My father really sat down and did all the applications with me. He actually encouraged me to do all the practice tests. He's the one that found out that when you just take the tests a lot of times, you train your mind, and it's not necessarily about the knowledge per se. It's about the, the, the capacity for great test taking. Mm -hmm. And once he unlocked that, he said, look, this is, a, this is an opportunity for you to just put the work in and excel. And it's rare... And I would say that uh, it's rare in many cases for you to have that kind of correlation between odds where you put the work in, you can excel. I mean, there's so many folks with us in athletics and entertainment where they put the work in and you got to have that genetic, you know, you yeah. get, for athletes, you get, you know, you got to have that athletic or for music, you've got to have that stroke of talent where whatever you're creating is actually hitting right at that same cultural moment with whatever the conversation culturally is going on. But standardized testing is great because you do the, you do the work and you can get the type of results. You're exactly you right. But did you uh, provide an essay to Harvard that was yeah. like, what was that on? I would have to go back and even read it because I'll say this. At that time, I was very much doing all of those tasks to please and make my father and mother proud. So at the time, I will say, like, look, I, I definitely went around to all the Rotary International Speaking Competitions, and my banner that I was waving is, I'm gonna be a young minority neurosurgeon. And here's a kid, 14 years old, on stage talking about, hey, you know, I wanna go to Harvard, I need this scholarship, I'm gonna be a neurosurgeon. Yeah. All lies. Who, did, yeah, who, who didn't wanna back that? No, you know? of course, so yeah. I would say that, uh, you know, if I, if I could go back all the way, and I'm sure I could, Going back all the way would actually, I would need to actually read that essay again. I would say, though, that I know that during that time, that's the banner I was, that, that's the narrative that I, yeah. was, that I was sticking to. Well, let's know? go back to the very beginning then. Where sure. are you originally from? So my parents are Salvation Army officers. Mm -hmm. So I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad immigrated from the Caribbean islands. Both of my grandparents were stationed together. 
like missionary service wise uh, in the Caribbean and my father grew up in a really a, a tradition of Calypso music mm. and uh, he wanted to find a better way and he fell in love with jazz and said look I'm going to Washington DC and go play in the jazz clubs and my mother being the endearing supportive woman that she was she found a way to get herself in a college in Tennessee and she would she would uh, commute to DC to go see my father and play and that's a hell uh, of a commute. Yeah, that's a serious commute. And uh, listen, you know, they're, they're also very religious. And so, you know, that she grew up with this concept of, you know, I don't want to have children before I'm married, et cetera. And my dad was, he's in the club. He's in a DC. jazz musician. Yeah, 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 look, yeah. <laughs> look I, I love you and everything, you know, and we, we got to figure out this long distance thing, you know. <laughs> and the minute that she acquiesced to his, uh, to his propositions, mm -hmm. I was conceived. At and Club Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For sure. And uh, I was conceived and bottom line, you know, they had to change their uh, their career trajectories to now have take on the responsibility of a child. Yeah. And so they they, they went the the one place that they knew and that was to go and enlist in the Salvation Army. So they enlisted in well, the Salvation that, what Army. What does the Salvation Army like? What does enlisting mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, like, all I know is the shops where you can get like shirts for like a dollar. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that's a big part of that's a big part of what they do. And it's a big part of their branding. They're actually a Christian based organization that was founded by William Booth, uh, came out of the Methodist Church. And the Methodist Church had an issue with William Booth taking religious lyrics and putting them to drinking songs in order to actually convert the alcoholics and the homeless to come into the church. They had a problem with it. So they kicked him out of the Methodist Church. And he said, look, I'm, I'm going to start the Christian mission. And that evolved into the Salvation Army. So when you see the S's on your uniform, it's saved to serve. And, uh, you know, had I not decided to go to Harvard, I would have been a third generation Salvation Army officer. So wow. I was born in D.C., only stayed there really for nine months. So a lot of times I go to DC and people be like, "Oh, I can claim Ryan." <laughs> Welcome home, yeah. right? Yeah. And I literally it's was you, only... Wale, and Fatrell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm there, and uh, you know, uh, I, I was there for about for for really like nine months uh, of my life because, uh, well, actually, not even nine months. I was born there and spent the first nine months of my life in a children's home in Suriname because my grandparents wanted my mother to finish college. So they literally, after she gave birth took me from her arms, raised me in a children's home for the first nine months so she could finish her college because I, you know, I was born in September, so that put her to Maine, she could graduate. And then from there, they actually decided that they were gonna enroll in officer's training in Atlanta. And I lived all over because it's organized like the military. So Atlanta, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, um, you know, San Francisco, and eventually went to Harvard from Stockton. Really thinking about that though, I went to high school for three years and in those three years of high school, because I got into Harvard out of my junior year, in those three years of high school, I went to four different high schools. So that's how much we were really moving in the summer. Yeah. Was it hard to like make and keep friends? No, and I'll, I'll tell you why not. Because of Superphone. Because yeah. of Superphone, <laughs> all the way back then, right? No, actually, uh, one, of the years, uh, one of the years my mom, uh, my father actually decided that he wanted to go to law school because he said, look, you know, working in the Salvation Army is great, there's a sacrifice in the service of others. You're storing up treasures in heaven. It's very, you know, it's, it's, it's very rooted in this religious concept of service to others and storing up treasures in heaven while you sacrifice on earth. And my dad said, look, you know, I'm seeing guys out here that are lawyers making some money. I'm going to go to law school. So while he was in law school, my mother took a, took a job at Hunton and Williams, which was an international law firm in Belgium. And I was the bad American. That's 
that's that's basically what they called me when I showed up for school because we couldn't afford the American school. The American school was too expensive. So my mom just sent me to school at this Catholic school down the street in Belgium. And everybody was so excited to see, you know, this young man of color from the United States walking into their classroom. And the first thing they asked me is like, are you friends with MC Hammer? And I'm like, I never heard of <laughs> this guy. Right? It was a, and I'm not friends with him. And he really was like a hero. And, and it's funny now because I'm, I'm, I'm actually friends with Hammer. We actually just did. Um, I played San Quentin. He was in the audience. He's close to uh, one of the investors. Wow. In You've got to go back and tell everybody. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. Back in Belgium. Yeah. I go back and tell, yeah. That's my boy now. Right. That's true. So I'm there, and uh, and they say, "Oh, you're a bad American, man, because you know you literally disappointed us in everything that we expected an American kid to become, be able to come in here." They didn't and say, mean bad, yeah. like cool. No, they were yeah, like no, bad, like yeah. you're not friends with MC Hammer. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And those and those kids actually would uh, they really idolized American culture, and I think it's great now that you start to see in Germany and Paris like their own iterations of the culture that they've appropriated in their own native tongues. But back then, it was you can't rap in your native language. You gotta if you rap, you gotta do it in English. Yeah. If you dance, you gotta take on the dances of the folks that's really cutting it and making it happen in the United States. But so how much did that shape you in like, you know, did you have to then become their idea of I an did. American? I did. I did. And so uh, I, I remember the guys' uh, names even. It was Mohamed, it was Rashid, and, and my guys there, and they would actually videotape, record on VHS the music videos. And at the end of school, they would clear all the tables out of the cafeteria set up the TV, put in the VHS, turn it into a dance studio, and they would literally rehearse in there for hours on end to be able to learn how to dance like MC Hammer. Whoa. And my mother, you know, was, was, a, was uh, amongst her many talents, a classically trained piano player and also a seamstress. So I told her, look, I need to get me some MC Hammer pants. We got to go over to the fabric store and I need you to sew that extra parachute or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then I started showing up at school with MC Hammer pants and the whole wave and, you know, doing what I could do to keep up with the guys in the dance practices afterwards and learning how to beatbox and everything else and knowing that in terms of the cool factor, I would have the edge because I actually was, uh, you know, yeah. a card-carrying, passport-carrying <laughs> yeah. Native American. You know? For those first nine straight months. Up. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, yeah, straight up. So that was, that was, uh, that was you know, formative years. And I would say that uh, from very early on, I understood just this power of entertainment to be able to break the ice and allow me to make friends because mm -hmm. it attracted people to me. At the same time, though, I would say that, you know, people always say, hey, was it hard moving so much? And I only know that. I have nothing else right. to compare it to. So I only really know that experience. And I would say, you know, looking back, I had a great time. What was your, like, opening line if it was like, hey, everybody, this is Ryan and he's from a million other places? Right. The opening line, really, for me, my calling card was really just like... Uh, turning up in class and when i say turning up i'm talking about i had all the answers i was the first hey here's hand the new up. kid run hand up yep with the answers and everything but that doesn't always so, make you popular that just yeah, makes what, you what, what was dope about it though was that you said right, it was style <laughs> yeah you said you said it was style and then after school it's like yo where's the dance class where's the you know who's the fly girls who's the you know what i mean yeah and so you had that balance and i think that that continues to sort of carry on in the my public perception even to this day like hey he's a smart guy and you know at the same time he's still able to run in these circles and do this type of music and and, and do sure. these tours etc did yeah. you ever dumb yourself down 
I would say no, and I, you know, I've been telling this story pretty. Uh, I've been telling this story pretty often recently, just as I've had a lot of young people who are starting their own enterprises and who have young crackerjack folks that are coming in, feel like they know everything. And so for me, coming into the music industry in 2003, when I finally got a break, I obviously came in with this, you know, educational, esoteric intellectual chip on my shoulder and I remember you know sitting down with Tommy Mottola and he said look you know it's great that you have all of this you know educational accolades etc we appreciate it uh, until you're in a place where we want to be understand that you really your point of view is really just your point of view and it only becomes a point of view that people want to follow when you're in a place uh, where we want to be. So that's really what I think uh, instilled within me this concept of going through the door first mm -hmm. so that people say, oh, I see where Ryan's, I see where Ryan is. I, I wouldn't actually mind being over there. And then my point of view started to have a lot more gravitas. I wouldn't say that uh, that ever took dumbing myself down. It just, it just took, um, I, I guess, a level of humility to understand like, okay, take advice. People take advice well, actually, not always. People should take advice from people who are in places where they want to be. And until I'm in a place where people want to be, I can just keep my mouth shut and actually just listen. Doesn't mean I have to dumb myself down. It just means that, hey, all my ideas and concepts and ways that I feel like I can contribute until people are ready to actually receive that. I want to make sure that my time even sharing those concepts is as efficiently spent as possible as well. So it's, it's great and for me to be able to just sit back, listen, so that I could see how folks moved, whether I wanted to emulate or whether I wanted to actually deviate from those movements. And then once I was able to cut that door in the wall, get through and be able to wave at people from the other side, then my opinion, my point of view uh, started to have a lot more gravitas. Well, did you understand who you were as a 16-year-old ready to graduate high school? And did you understand how unique a situation that was? Yeah, I mean, first off, I'd, I never graduated high school because I went to Harvard from my junior year. So, you know, I felt like I understood my purpose. And my purpose was, look, you know, my parents are immigrants and I have a responsibility to just, you know, I got to be, I'm the first grand child yeah. you know my grandfather gotta be a nurse or, yeah, yeah right yeah. yeah and so you know when i when i decided that i wanted to be more stevie wonder than you know you know than doogie hauser yeah or then, ben carson right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right right when i decided that you know i knew that that was definitely going to be an uphill battle and it was going to take uh, a certain level of capital accumulation as a result of the efforts that I invested in a music career, mostly because my father and his brothers and my mother, you know, who was, a, like I said, a classically trained piano uh, player, they really were like, hey, man, everybody likes doing music. Make it a career out of music. You, you know, that has really, you know, it has very little to do with just hard work and 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 uh, just being great. There's so many. I mean, my dad would say all the time. There's so many folks that get out of Juilliard, they can't even get a job, and they definitely don't get a record deal. Like, what are you doing? What are you like? Is that really your concept? Is that really your goal? And so it took me. It took me coming. To, it took me first of all 
uh, being in almost a wilderness period for eight years. So graduated from school and literally took me eight years to just figure it out, make some beats, work for somebody, um, you know, doing everything I possibly could. My boy got signed, then he got shelved. And then me being back on my dad's couch and, and him saying, look, right, you know, what is it? What what drives you to actually still want to do this after, you know, you just you back on the couch, man, you the Harvard grad. You're supposed to be the guy that's actually man. showing the other cousins and you know, family members like that I did a good job as a parent and now you back here on the couch, man. What's, <laughs> yeah. what's the deal? And I said, look, you know, uh, 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 the, the difference between a winner and a loser is winners never quit. And so I'm not going to quit on my dream. Now, I understand if I'm asking you for an advance for some equipment, et cetera, I'll agree to whatever your terms are for that advance. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not quitting. Right. And so uh, basically my pops actually, you know, gave me a, he gave me a, a, a great opportunity. He maxed out all his credit. He didn't have any money. He maxed out all his credit cards and said, okay, go to Guitar Center, get the equipment that you feel like you need. And then uh, you got to pay me back double in five years and i'm gonna give you five years because that gives you enough time to graduate from law school and go get yourself a real job and it took me actually catching that break in 03 uh getting to new york uh in, in an internship and then ending that year with like six hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank for my dad to be like okay this is <laughs> this is actually real so you go to harvard but you're not necessarily um making music your sole focus I was making music my sole focus even at Harvard. But it wasn't your major. Uh, no. And so the, because the kids that majored in music at Harvard, they were doing a different kind of music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was very sort of mathematical and it was music theory, et cetera. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking at Usher like, oh, he's the same age as me. And he got all the girls and he's spinning a chain around his neck. And yeah. I like the type of music that he's making. Yeah. And I researched and, you know, just following along in the trade publications that – Jermaine Dupri's tracks at that time were going for like a buck fifty, two fifty. We talking about two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, right? not just. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so for me, I knew that was totally out of my league. So I said, "Look, you know, the best way, and the same way that I'm, you know, had talked to my mom about, like, hey, you know, I want these MC Hammer parachute pants. I could have definitely probably bought some, and they would have cost three, four hundred dollars, or I could make some, and then it just cost me the cost of the actual." labor and time that I had to invest. So I just applied that same concept to making beats because I wanted Usher sounding beats. And so I loved and I wanted Missy sounding beats. And and so I loved and Genuine. And, and so I loved, uh, you know, Timbaland's production and, and Jermaine Dupri's production. And I said, look, you know, for me to go out and buy that is going to cost me 150000 which is basically the cost of four years at Harvard. Or I could just invest my time and see how closely I could emulate those sounds and put my own twist on it since I'm going to write my own songs and everything. And so in order to do that, you got to think, if one Jermaine Dupri beat is 150000 how many hours of my own time would it take to get to that equivalence of uh, proficiency and sound quality, etc.? And I would say, look, a lot of my early beats, you know, I, I really was doing my best to emulate, but without the knowledge of, you know, how do you mix this kick drum? How do you, you know, sample this way? How do you... Uh, 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 layer everything out and, and balance all the elements out with a multi-track, I was spending a lot of time and that time actually, you know, there's a there's a cost of the time. And so I was on academic probation three times during my right? tenure at Harvard. Yeah. 
man. Yeah. What's the what's the funniest sort of shortcut you took because you didn't have like the same kind of keyboard that Tim had, or you didn't have the same kind of like you know drum samples that like any like you know big time producer right. had. What shortcut did you find that you like really made yours? Well, I would say this: I had a great I had a great mentor while I was in while I was in college. It was uh, it was a resident advisor by the name of Sandy Green. Uh, he and his girlfriend, now wife, uh, were there, and he was a, a big uh, fan of Teddy Riley's mm-hmm. and also a big fan of the music industry and the shifts that were going to happen in the music industry. So when we would have our talks. Usually I had to go see him because he would have to advocate on my behalf when I was on academic probation. So when you're on academic probation, you go before the administrative board, someone has to represent you and vouch for you and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to actually make sure that Ryan is on track this next semester. At the same time, he saw that there was a spark and a fire and a passion for music. So he gave me an ASR 10, which happened to be the wow. same sampler yeah. that Timberland was using. And so once I had that and just how gritty the sounds actually actually came out of that instrument, I, I really uh, got to the business of teaching myself as much as possible. And there was a little studio downstairs called Quad Sounds, and they had the equipment. They had that little half-inch reel. They had the ADATs down there. And I just became a student um, uh, of that game and of that, of that entire craft. And so that served me extremely well when I got to New York City because I then became what was known as really a 100 percenter, meaning that you know, you could just put me in a studio with nothing and I'm going to do the track. I'm going to engineer it. I'm going to write the top line. I'm going to write the reference for you. And then whoever buys that song, I'm, I'm a 100% copyright owner yeah. on that song. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so I feel like everyone's uh, pathway in life is really um, dictated by the decisions that they make around the time they invest in whatever uh, makes them happy. And so for me, um, I think that, you know, the work ethic that was instilled within me, my dad said, look, don't be afraid. If you finish one practice test, do seven. If you're if you have the mental capacity and you feel like you can and you feel like you're actually progressing, you could do seven in one sitting if that's what you want to do. And so I felt like the, all of those uh, elements and teachings and just practices from the time I was young definitely translated to every single stage of my career uh, following. So um, did you find ways to relax and all this because it sounds like a very intense sort mm-hmm. of like the the drive is just really just like a hundred miles an hour yeah so how are you like did you have any downtime yeah i mean listen you know i, I would say that anyone you were an that 18 year old away from home like, <laughs> yeah yeah I, I would say that anyone that looks at my past relationship history knows that the inspiration behind a lot of the songs that i was writing and have written have always been tied to some which was my downtime which is oh who's my baby boo who's my you know inspiration who's my who's my muse and yeah. so you know by nature of just how how women are and at least the women that that have ever been in my life they always have been very demanding of time hey you gotta turn off the keyboard hey you can't bring your books over hey we're just gonna watch this movie hey we're just gonna go out and do this hey you gotta come hang out with the family that type of stuff and so i had to learn uh i had to learn to i would say develop an appetite for that in order to make you know to to uh in order to receive the happiness 
that I got from making her happy. Yeah. You know? And so that that that's the downtime per se. And I would say You, you can know, tell her I'm writing this for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could. I could. But at some point yeah, don't you, you want to be a singer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At some point, you got to actually play the song for her, and you got to play it for her mom, and you know. And she was running around. Actually, in in, in college, it was uh, it was a, a friend of mine to this day. Her name is Aixa. She was just at the tenth anniversary concert, and she was really the the type that she was from Hartford, Connecticut, and uh, she was going to Wheelock, an all girls school. And you know, I was just so proud to have an off campus girl yeah, at Harvard that and, existed. It wasn't yeah, like yeah. your friend from Canada <laughs> yeah, yeah, from yeah, summer yeah. camp. Yeah. <laughs> And she would pull up, she would be at all the talent shows and, you know, she would help me lug my keyboard through the snow because I wasn't getting paid for any of those gigs, but yeah. she would be right there sort of front and center uh, and making it happen. And so, I mean, I think honestly what happened with her was that, you know, uh, she was, I mean, just stunning in general. And so like and coming from Hartford, uh, I think like, you know, there would be the, uh, I always remember like the twins from Jagged Edge invited her on some tour and she actually went and I was like, okay, I definitely got to really make it in the music business. To you know compete with the twins from yeah, Jagged Edge? Yeah, I mean, come on, brother. You they know, don't even know time? where the party's at. Yeah. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> they knew where it was. You know what I'm saying? They knew where it was. Apparently on the bus. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and so, I mean, like I said, we're still friends to this day, uh, but she was an incredible sort of support system and, and kind of the first time where, like, um, you know, my parents were still all the way on the West Coast, so my idea almost of home was going to Hartford and, and you know, just being part of her family and yeah. the Puerto Rican tradition because, you know, she was Puerto Rican, but look, Japanese, like, that was the, that was the flyest yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> type of little combination or whatever. And so I've always had sort of that penchant for, uh, for, for that sort of aesthetic um, inspiration, so to speak, uh, that's, that's attached to the complexity of the mind that is a woman, you know? So totally. I feel like, for me, that definitely was, was that, that's where I found my downtime, if you will. Yeah. What really, like hit for you with Stevie Wonder? Was it the fact that he could play all the instruments and be a hundred percenter? Was it like the melodies that he would create? Was it? It's all that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's Stevie Wonder. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, there is really, I would say there's, it, he's uh, unanimous, unanimously undisputed as really just a prodigy on so many levels. So first and foremost, he put out his first album when he was 11 or 12. So I remember the conversation I had with my father that look, even though I'm you know, 15, 16 years old, matriculated at Harvard, I'm five years behind this man if I wanna put out albums. Cause he put his first one out at 11 or 12. And then when you just think about the complexity of his chord progressions, his changes, mm. the fact he was playing all the instruments, the fact that he was attracting some of the best minds and synthesized sounds like working with Kurzweil and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, uh, a harmonica of all, you know, instruments and still making that be fly. And then just the sort of uh, cultural, uh, sort of a very incisive cultural pen, which exposed the, the struggles and challenges that he was facing and still doing that without even being able to have the gift of sight to see all of it. I mean, you know. To have someone like that as a benchmark and a standard means that, you know, you could spend your whole life or two lifetimes or three lifetimes trying to even approach the level of, of proficiency and impact, right? So I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm still excited talking just about Stevie Wonder, yeah. you know? He's, he's incredible. Have you met him? Yes. So I got the chance uh, once to um, play an ESPN 
or Espy's, I think, like pre-party, and he happened to be at one of the tables in front, and I was totally nervous. And and you know, as a vocalist, I mean, I think there, you know, there's very few vocalists, even vocalists, vocal. He's like a <laughs> singer's singer in terms of the melismas and runs and and just his tone and range, etc. And so I said, look, you know, I'm gonna just stay right here in my little range and and, <laughs> and do my do do you know do my arrangements. And I had a great band that night, and so you know, I, I did have a chance to just meet him once. Um, and then I also have a, a really good friend of mine, uh, once again, you know, of the of the female persuasion who understood the kind of uh, uh, of relationship I had in terms of admiration. And so for one of my birthdays, uh, and this was probably one of the most thoughtful gifts I've ever received. Um, I had done a show in Atlanta where uh, one of Stevie's kids uh, was actually in attendance and she was there in Atlanta and she actually connected with, with, uh, Steve's son and, uh, went, uh, kind of record shopping to find, uh, every single Stevie Wonder album, but in the year that it actually was released. So not reproductions, yeah. et cetera, found all of those wow. and then worked with the family to actually get them all signed from Stevie. So those, you know, just sentimentally that wow. I would say that's one of the most thoughtful gifts I've ever received no is yeah. that collection of records that are all signed by Stevie. Yeah. This is a really dumb question. And also like one that's a little bit like, that's a really great story. Yeah. This, what's the signature like? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it, what is any anyone's signature like? like sort I mean, of like a like, scribble, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Even mine is a scribble. Once you have to do a lot of, like, I used to have before I ever had to do uh, autographs in scale. I mm-hmm. had this concept I was going to have this flourishing signature because yeah. you know you grow up, you see the Constitution, how yeah. all the signatures yeah. are, yeah. and then when you got to start signing thousands of album covers and books, et well, cetera, what if you're going to be a, a doctor one day and you have yeah. to, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that being yeah, said, yeah. Barack Obama has a great signature. He does. Yeah, he yeah, does. he yeah. does. God bless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, God bless. For me, I definitely, yeah. I definitely found a way to just have a. You know, just a really quick line per se, so that I could scale it. Well, I only only because like so when we met Stevie, um, we did a thing for MTV like years ago, right? And we uh, somehow like we we made this interview happen. Yes. And I got the feeling, and it's Aww. been repeated by a bunch of other people that Stevie can he's aware of his surroundings enough that he can. And this, not this see. did come up recently because Shaq also said that he believes that Stevie can see. I trust Stevie and believe. That Stevie is without sight. I felt sight. like Stevie understood his surroundings well enough that he maybe if he can't see, he could definitely sign oh things legibly. Yeah, I I believe that I believe that hum, the the propensity for the human sort of genetic makeup to adapt in incredible ways would allow someone to be able to say that Stevie could see in whatever way seeing right. yeah. actually exists for him. That's what I believe. That is a doctor's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> opinion right there. Yeah. Um, how tough was it to be an artist at Harvard? It was, I, I believe every aspiration is as tough as you decide that it will be for you. So for me, I decided that whatever uh, elements of life I would need to adapt in order to even consider myself an artist, I would find pleasure and excitement and happiness in approaching and living with all of those elements of life. And so I say that, you know, um, for me, any challenge that I've decided that is important for me to, to, to aim to overcome, 
is actually, I count it all joy. I count it all just, I count it all as part of like, hey, this is, this is woven into my happiness. Me not having any money is actually woven into my happiness. I know it's part of my story. Me, you know, having to go and shoplift crackers so I could eat, that's part of my happiness, yeah. it's part of my story. And so I've always, uh, I, I, I've always just basked in the glory of the process. So deciding that I wanted to be an artist on campus, first of all, there are, there are byproducts which all artists um, who have any kind of success on any level enjoy, which is people appreciate them, people love what they do, people understand the struggle, people understand the heartache and torment, people uh, respond to the fact that here's someone who's a poet or a bard who can actually express through their poetry uh, what they're feeling in, in more beautiful ways that can move them and maybe move someone that they need to move. So, hey, I'm going through this breakup. I'm going to actually play Neo's song because what I want to say is not is, is, is going to come out in a different, less powerful way than Neo's going to do it with the music underneath. And so I've always just counted the, the, the opportunity to be an artist and a writer as just a, a way that I can be of value and of service. And I think maybe that comes from the fact that my parents are just service-based totally. yeah. uh, characters. And so, you know, I would say that really anything in my life, whereas someone may maybe from the outside would say, oh, man, you know, that must have been hard. I, I, I have always counted it as just, you know, it's a cost and it's a cost that I voluntarily decided to take on to get where I wanted to For get. For sure. Um, we're artists. Uh, I saw that uh, A-Track, who's a friend, recently said this uh, sort of to, to welcome in the new year. He was like, people should really uh, embrace the the trial and error of being an artist, right? You yeah. should take that time. You described it as as your wilderness. Eight sure. years. In, in your trial and error time, when you're figuring yourself out as a human being, when you're figuring your, your sound out... Uh, as an artist, what is what is a moment or two that really struck you as like the toughest time? If someone like you thought was going to give you a deal said no to you, or if you like really did you know run out of rent money, or or what what was that moment where you thought, well, this is this is a pretty deep place right here? Well, I would say that actually happened after the wilderness period. So this, you know, the wilderness period, I think is, you should just accept your entire career as a <laughs> wilderness period and there will be moments of oasis yeah. in, the, in the wilderness period. And I would say the first moment where I really had to sit down and say, okay, what do I do now is that moment when I realized that the, 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 the moment that I realized that the, the history that I had started to make or the history the history that I had made with Cassie's first album was only going to be a one album moment. And so at that point, uh, I remember the moment at which we really understood that Cassie's record was going to be significant on so many levels. And whatever I was thinking about doing with my career at that time, I, I put on pause and said, look, I'm going to put every ounce of energy, uh, resource, time, ingenuity into making sure that this is the most significant cultural, technological music moment I possibly can make this moment. And so I believe that once I realized that, okay, this is only just going to be a one album moment, I had to recalibrate and say, okay, what do I do now? And I think also that really had to do with the fact that, um, you know, it was one of the first times that I had thought about, okay, 
what does my life look like in concert and partnership with someone else? And so up to that point, you know, when you're still young and you're not in a culture that says, oh, you have to be married by 16, you have that time where you're like, oh, it's about me. It's about my dream. It's about where do I need to get. And so at that point in my life, that was the point in time where I really had first started to think about, okay, what does partnership look like where I actually have an aligned shared vision and goal with someone? And for me, at that time, I felt as though all of the elements were there in terms of the synergy because look at look at the impact that was happening and so when that actually you know became apparent when it became apparent that it would be a one album moment a one album cycle moment i had to sit down and say okay what do i do now yeah and you know you get you get cosigns from significant people early do you think that um, those people worked in your favor as mentors? And do you think that you took to the music industry and understood what it had to offer in the best ways? Yeah, I would also say that I was definitely very stubborn. So being stubborn meant that I just felt like, okay, I, I have a concept and idea on how I would like to live in the music industry. And first and foremost, um, I, I don't drink I don't smoke. I don't. Uh, it, it's, I just never have. I ain't got no tats. You know what I mean? I I, I remember my mom was all, already scared when I came home with six gold fronts on the bottom because I told her I I pulled my teeth out and made them permanent. And she went to my father and had a whole conversation. He had to sit me down. I was like, yeah, it just popped out the fronts, you know. So I just grew up in an environment where my parents were like, hey, Ryan, you know, this is how you were raised make sure that you maintain and retain the self-respect and identity uh, for how you were raised. It doesn't mean that you have to, um, you have to refuse to, um, uh, it doesn't mean that you have to refuse to, you know, have fun or refuse to hang out with folks, etc. I always knew that I just was on the path of a different drummer and that drum beat was in my own head. And that I also knew that, uh, I also knew that, uh, from a music standpoint, there there are folks, you know, like Yeza as leaders and as followers. And um, for me, I always just was like, look, I understand the loneliness and the dilemma of being an innovator and a leader. And once again, I embrace that as part of my life pathway because whatever I'm able to innovate, wherever I'm able to lead, no matter how long it may take me to achieve and forge the path, the fact that the path is forged means that anyone who comes after me can achieve success in half the time, a quarter of the time, a tenth of the time. And that for me is what really made all of the innovation, all of the groundbreaking, all of the door making, it made that that much more exciting for me. And so I would say this, a lot of the mentors and a lot of the early cosigns, I feel like those folks, they knew how to work in the system as it existed. And for me, I always wanted to know how to work in the system as it would exist in the future. And so I think I'm still on that pathway now because, you know, I've seen so many great technology companies that have come and created incredible value in a ridiculously short amount of time. And when you think about just the cultural levels and the cultural levers that we pull in, especially the hip hop community, uh, are, are sort of overlooking 
of data and overlooking of ownership from the very early stages in terms of our customer base. I'm saying I'm, we, you can own your masters. People been talking about that for a long time. I'm talking about actually owning the customer base and owning that relationship. Direct to, where, to consumer. Yeah, 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 where yeah, yeah. Every single customer gets attended to that happens at amazon you don't you don't actually put in an order at amazon and be like okay they might not fulfill mine but it, you expect every single person that makes one of the multi-million orders at amazon every day expects that same level of prime next day delivery tracking the same way and so if it can be done at that scale um uh for you know an actual you know marketplace it that means that as technology progresses that kind of insight, that kind of uh, efficiency can be applied to serving every single fan of an artist. And so that's really the crusade that I'm on. And listen, to your point, when I first started Disruptive Multimedia, first started Superphone, I'll never forget it. I went to Fab's crib. It was Fab. It was Pusha. I'm all excited. I'm like, yo, I'm selling my joint direct, et cetera, et cetera. I believe that they are folks who understood, and it's clear that they're still doing it, that they understood how to actually survive and thrive in the business as it existed for them. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of way. For sure. Right. So, you know, I, at that point, I'm like, yo, these are my brothers. These are my guys. I want to lead them into this new pathway. Yeah. And I feel like even up to this point, it's still just like, okay, oh, snap. Oh, it's streaming right now. I'm like, yo, guys, streaming is... It's that's that's a couple years back, man. You know what I'm saying? And so I think like uh, I think that, you know, uh, uh, at the same time, though, you just have to be happy. And yeah. so sometimes the fear of the unknown actually affects your happiness. And I think that the fear of the uh, of the unknown sometimes will also affect your ego because you going in and saying, oh, I don't know everything. Oh, I'm not the man. Oh, I actually need help. I need support. And so for me. Uh, that also was just a process and transition that I embraced once again, just to be able to be that kind of trailblazer and leader. Well, then, okay. So I have I have two things to say to that, which are one, uh, you did a New York Magazine profile probably like 2006, like yeah. your your first, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess, like big piece. Right. And in there, Tommy Mottola says that he expected such great things from you and not only in music, but on a totally different level, which was tech. Right. And obviously, I think that he saw your passion very wow. early. Was, was I mean, like, because that's, like, right when you're about to break. Yeah. 2006. For sure. And then my other thing is that, you know, in when you're in these conversations with, like, the Fabs and the Pushes and whoever else, you know, there's just an example because you just named them. Right. But does that present a schism for you? Like, are you able to preserve those friendships? Or is it like, oh, they just don't see it, and therefore I can't fuck with them in the same way? Nah, there's no schism in the friendships, and I will also say that it's 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 a it's a great time now to really just talk about are those really friendships? I have this right. conversation all the time, like, hey, what's an, what is an actual friend, right? And mm -hmm. so my buddy Jared McKinney from from Harvard, he always told me I, I would ask him, I say, hey, who do you consider a friend? And he said, well, someone I don't feel embarrassed asking for a hundred dollars from. Now I'm, I'm I'll be real, like you know, I think we've looked and we've seen many times where like a Jay has actually said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay your taxes, I'm gonna buy, I'm gonna cover your lawyer. 
The question, though, is did those people feel like that was like a surprise or did they feel like they were on those kinds of terms with Jay that they were asking, hey, can you pay my lawyer fees? And so I think that just the the, the culture of hip hop is I don't need anybody. I got my team. I'm completely self-reliant. You know what I'm saying? I'm never going to ask you for anything type of wave. And so when you actually get to that down to that point where would I have ever called I mean, maybe I ask him for a feature, mm -hmm. but at the same time, that's still business. So is that really friendship? And so for me, like, are the friendships that are happening or, or just because two people on a record together, are they really friends, etc.? I think for me, uh, I started to notice and I would say uh, kind of running around with Ye, I started to notice that, you know, there are a few people who actually really did just pick up the phone right to talk to people and be like hey what's going on and i would say for me i've definitely always been some uh, in some ways an outlier to that because i had that sort of chip that said like hey i don't need anybody for anything i'm gonna do stuff independently i'm 100 percent writer i don't need no producers i don't need no keyboard players i don't need that I, I could read my own contracts i mean i thought i could do everything sure and so i think if if ever there existed a schism i think that schism was more the fact that like people just were like oh Ryan feel like he's on his own wave, which I was. And so I think it's, it's now sort of much later as I start to understand and study the science of relationships that I realized that there could have been a great deal more equity built around those times and just saying like, hey, man, you know, it's all good if you don't see it now. If you ever think about it, you need digital, you know, strategy, whatever. I ain't even got to deal with you. Put your digital person with me. I got you type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, Fab and I still up to this point, I, w I was at his studio when he was uh, playing the uh, new single, Choosy with Jeremiah, and they were thinking about the rollout. And he still has enough deference to me in the meeting to be like, hey, Ryan, what do you think type of way? Yeah. And so for me, I think at this juncture, um, my my greatest my greatest uh, excitement comes from this concept that I can actually scale help and information to anyone that's actually open to it. Right. right? Who yeah. has been open to that? Uh, well, I would say that uh, obviously Cassie didn't have a choice, so she was open to it. Yeah. <laughs> she, she didn't have a choice, and she became sort of the front runner. And I would say, like, look, there've been some definite er early adopters based on great digital leads on specific teams. So I yeah. would say uh, Joyner Lucas had a had an incredible digital lead named Drew who came to us and said, look, you know, I definitely believe in this direct audience ownership. He built a great text list on Superphone. I would say that uh, Charlie Jabale with 2 Chains, um, once again, very innovative, very open-minded, said, look, you know, we got these dabbing, you know, Santa Christmas sweaters. We want to do that over that text. That fully owned. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I think he was another one. Uh, Nolan Smith with Super Duper Kyle, mm -hmm. uh, another guy that's just very innovative and uh, was the type of person that said, look, I actually want to just pick up the phone and pick your brain about everything and you know through that friendship I was able to actually put somebody with uh, Kyle on tour my man Kent Garrett went on tour with them to help them to understand this new this new wave and now I think it's also uh, I'm, I'm proud and, and empowered when Nolan is is able to run around and be like yo Really, nobody's doing the text game better than Kyle, but that's because he was one of those folks that was really open to it. And I would say also, um, Olivia and Miley, uh, you know, when they had their concept, they came to us and said, hey, look, we really want to do this well, and we're open, and we want to learn the best practices. They went on to, you know, have an award-winning campaign. Miley's number was on 300 billboards in Times Square, and it was also, once again, sort of that uh, pivotal 
and uh, transformative moment in my technology organization to be able to say like, hey, I started by just giving my number out on Twitter. Now, Miley just gave her number out to 98 million people on Instagram, and we've built a scalable, reliable platform that isn't going to break. And that was their number one you know, concern. They're like, oh, we break the internet every time <laughs> we do something. And we had a 99.9% you know, uptime to actually responding to and getting all those texts done. And my, the reason why I feel like that's just the base level standard is because when you think about, once again, when you think about Amazon, it's very tough to get to somebody on the phone per se at Amazon because yeah. that's how efficient their, uh, that's how efficient their infrastructure is built. It's very tough to get on the phone with somebody at Facebook. You got a problem with your Facebook profile? Good luck trying to get somebody on the phone over there. Yeah, there but, are no phone numbers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. that's that that's because they, <clears throat> they've built such an incredible infrastructure also from a community standpoint where the community can help one another. And so I feel like it's inevitable that music with the kind of cultural impact that it has, it's inevitable that music eventually get there and the folks that are early adopters and get there soon. And I'm here to help. So that's why I give my number. I was like, textryan.com, leave me your number. You want to talk about this, hit me. I'm that type of person that's just like, look, I just want to be there to say, like, look, I once I got through the door, I just held the door open. And as many people wanted to run through and be early, I want to help them get there. You're being of service. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For um, sure. You know, uh, do you still have the same passion for music that you do? Is I mean, like, because now we're talking and I'm just like, oh, no, there's there. this is a clear... Like, there's a delineation between, like, what you actually care about and what you have cared about, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, so, like, yeah. you know, uh, where, where does your, your passion with music lie? You just did the concert in yeah. Brooklyn, the 10-year anniversary. Yes, yes. My passion is still uh, very much, uh, it's very, very much uh, currently, I would say, laser-focused on the opportunity that's in front of me. And the opportunity that's in front of me, yeah, there's an opportunity, hey, maybe I can produce a track here and there, you know, uh, shout out my brother Swiss, Alicia's working, shot me a DM, hey, we're looking for X, Y, and Z, et cetera. And so I think there's definitely, there's that opportunity. And for me, I'm making decisions now. And I think that as you start to get, uh, as you start to get up there in terms of like what decade you're in in life, right? Yeah. Because, you know, your first two, you're just figuring it out, you know, and then like, you know, three, four, you're just like, okay, hopefully you're getting into the groove. And then once you get to that four, five, six, seven, that's like, okay, I realize just how quickly two, three, four went by, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so I would say that, uh, I would say that uh, now I'm making decisions based on impact. And so, you know, um, name me the fop, the, name me, excuse me, name me the top five songs of last year. Right. And maybe people can only name one, you know, Old Town Road, maybe. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Old and Town then, Road and it's five remixes. That's right. right. I just did it. Yeah, there yeah, you go. Did it, yeah. right? <laughs> so 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 when you think about the impact there, and I and I do strongly consider and feel that there was a massive impact there. Cause I go home for, for the holidays and my little uh nieces and nephews are still, you know, singing and dancing in the living room to the video and everything. Uh, the the I would say that the shelf life of that impact, yeah, I mean, we are the world, probably still, could still come on today, people feel some type of way, um, but now there's, you know, um, We Love the Earth by, you know, um, what is his name? Uh, um, Literally anybody else. Little Dicky, yeah, <laughs> oh, Little Dicky. Oh, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. We Love the Earth or whatever it is, you know, mm. that's kind of the updated version. And so what I'm realizing is that the songs that touch us, 
those songs are cyclical. It's just about a different vessel for that generation. Right. So somebody's going to do a version of, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, Dear Mama. And just because it's, you know, extent, you know, triple extentacion or whoever else it is, then that's going to be the that's going to be the cultural arbiter of that generation. The song, though, is the same. And so I would say that for me, from an opportunity standpoint, my opportunity is an opportunity to actually crack the code, if you will, on what the 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, 5.0 of the relationship that people have with music and the artists that create it. Because based on the saturation, everybody can make a record now. Everybody can be on Spotify now. Based on that saturation, if you want to have any type of longevity, you have to actually have that ownership and Spotify as great as it is with the end of year, you know, uh, updates, etc. You actually don't own that relationship unless you own, you know, the direct cell phone of all those people that are supporting you because of the algorithm. So, you know, I have 350,000, you know, followers on Instagram. Do I have 350,000 people texting me every day? Absolutely not. So, um, and do all 350,000 people actually see every time I post? Right. Absolutely not. And would Instagram love to get my money so that I can get closer to that everyone actually seeing my post? Yes, they would. And so uh, I think that's great for advertising platforms. And at the same time, when I see artists that are just struggling to break through, I remember those moments and points for me. And I'm saying, look, there's... 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more of the people all trying to struggle to break through because the barrier to entry of actually creating and distributing is so low that everybody is doing it. So once you actually do get even a little bit of traction, you got five people that like your record, you better have a phone number on those five people because their attention span is, is tiny. Yeah. And in 10 years or five years, whoever they by nature just the fact that you know music is subjective and people are fickle you don't have an emotional connection to those people they're just gonna keep moving they're gonna get a they're gonna get a recommendation from a spotify playlist and be like oh i'm a roddy rich man now you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. And so bottom line is people do have a sense of loyalty and have a sense of connection and have a sense of responsibility when there's an emotional connection and i believe that through technology an emotional connection can actually be scaled and so for all the artists and i care about sort of that early stage especially independent artists when you do that work to convert a fan you better own that fan and i'm not saying own it but own the relationship because you need to go a step further than them just liking your music. You got to have that emotional connection. And that emotional connection, man, that grows over time. And so, okay, I think that a decade ago, you were super early. I mean, clearly you were super early on, on YouTube. But you were also early in the idea of, of connecting with a fan on another level because you were giving them the access to you building a beat. Yes. That had not been done before, certainly on a video platform. Yeah. So you're creating something, you put it into a three and a half minute video, right. you shoot it out there and everyone's like, holy shit. And that's one thing. Mm -hmm. How about a decade later when it comes back on Twitter on Twitter's, you know, native <laughs> player and becomes a meme and becomes this thing where it's like just as valuable but in a different context, yeah. a decade later. Yeah. Could you have even imagined that? No. Yeah. And, and, and really, you know, once, once for me, once I put the once I put the the gift into the universe, 
it's there so that it can be uh, reappropriated, if you will, misappropriated, whatever appropriation that's supposed to be there because I'm off that already. I did that. And so if it takes someone else's creativity to resample it, uh, reinterpolate it in how they want to communicate what they want to communicate, that's great. And I, and I would never, I would say, uh, I would appreciate it, right? But I would never go back and be, and there have been so many people who've been like, yo, man, you got to bring the studio videos back, dude. And I'm like, yo, I did those. Yeah, and if right. you want to go see studio videos, just go go to YouTube yeah. and look at all the legion of producers yep. that are all making studio videos. You yeah. want to see that? There are going to be guys that are doing it with better camera equipment and all type of stuff. I'm off that. And so that was my gift. And once again, it's like how we started this interview. I opened the door. I created the blueprint. And now people can can achieve success in half the time, a quarter of the time, tenth of the time yeah. in order to get there. That's what we do, too. So our career is uh, coming on 13 years of, of It's the Real, right? And Straight hits. Yeah, all, Straight all hits. hits. All hits. <laughs> But what we've done is we've never stayed, we've never overstayed our welcome. Never right. the last person at the party. Just like you, you innovate and then you move on. Right. And hopefully the next people coming through will do it right. faster and quicker and better. Right. Um, okay. So that video, I, uh, was it addiction? Yeah, making of addiction. Okay. There's some like there's some ones that are just on Vimeo, right? right. And by the way, we were early on Vimeo too, like because yep. we were like, oh, it's the better quality and yeah. all that stuff right there. Even though it didn't have the audience of YouTube, but man, there's there's one out there called um, uh, what you like. Oh yes, I'm gonna give you what you like. Some, yeah, somebody's yeah. I'm gonna give it to you. I know what you like. Oh, yeah, great song. Yes, I know it never took off like the rest of them, but that yes. is just still. That fire. was my sister. My sister. Shout out to her. That. Yeah, shout out to her. And and that video was just great because we had it all my all the folks that were running around with me at the time, interns and folks that had flown out from from. Uh, from England, just because they were like, "Hey, man, you know, thanks for being so uh, open and receptive. I want to come hang out for a little bit." And that's the time when I was running around with, you know, twin G wagons in the city. Oh, so we're great. hanging out the G wagons. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Did you have yeah. your driver's license, by the way? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because I didn't know you went early. to school at sixteen. I didn't right. know if you got your driver's no, license. No, no, of well. course, of course, of course. <laughs> I did the whole way, the learning in the parking lot and all that. Yeah. So was Shiv in that video? Yes. Of shout course. out to okay. Shiv. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Was it a trip? So you know, you grew up and you were like, "Yo, like." Like Usher is out here, you know, hanging with JD, hanging with Puff. Like, you know, mm -hmm. he's young and, and getting it. Was it a trip later on when when Usher would come by your place and just like hang, hang out eat Chinese food? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That definitely was a trip. And I would say, though, uh, it's it's all about humanization. And I think that that's one of the that's one of the more. I would say uh, polarizing powers of social media mm. is that once people decide like, hey, I'm going to just share everything, then you really start to understand the humanization and just the difference in, I would say, relationships and the difference in circumstances, which are the only differentiators because on the human level, everyone is, you know, more or less the exact same. We all need to sleep at certain hours. We all get hungry. We got to go to the restroom. We got to put on clothes. We get cold. And that goes all the way up to, you know, the biggest celebrity all the way down to somebody that's just, you know, hanging out in the hood on the stoop, right? Because uh, it, it's just our humanity. And so um, now that you've been able to see that people can uh, give a window and can, can attract and earn audience from every single stage like you could just be a guy that's popping off and talking whatever you want to talk off the stoop of the hood to the guy that's like yo i'm the multi-millionaire real estate investor and this is my life there's also i think such a power 
of, of voyeurism that has been enabled by the Instagram generation and platforms like YouTube, et cetera, where everybody can now just be a you know content uh, creator and content distributor and you could build an audience. And so for people that that's what they want to do and that's what they love to do, I think that it's awesome uh, to have those platforms to be able to do it. And at the same time, though, I think that, you know, to whom much is given, there's also a great responsibility. And so I think when we look at this next generation, once again, I'll reference the conversation I was having with Kanye and he was saying like look you know um you know I'm not sure if I believe in the traditional school system I really believe that people should just be taught how to search and then if they can learn because actually there's a lot of like I don't know if my nieces and nephews would be able to know how to actually efficiently search in a search bar right but what they're looking for and then also have the discernment between what's actually real and believable and valid uh, versus was fake, right? Yeah. And so I think that. I mean, you know, I agree with Kanye on on a certain level. Right. I also very much disagree with his uh, his ability to to actually discern, right? Like you know, because because there are. I agree with like you know, search out the right answers, but right. you know, if you're gonna click on all the wrong links, then I don't know yeah. if that's. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I you know, if I, I, I would say that you know. Kanye, for me, just from the time that I've spent, it's just been a great visionary innovator. And so it takes a Virgil, it takes a No Idea, it takes a Don C, it takes a, you know, uh, 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 an Elon, it takes whoever else, you know, uh, um, uh, all, all of the folks that he has around him that he trusts to actually say, oh, yeah, that is a visionary concept. How do we actually make it so that... Right, it's palatable it's, and yes, yeah, exactly. understandable and all right, that stuff. Right, yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. And so I, 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 you know, I, I, I strongly believe, and the reason why I reference that conversation is that I do even still, even in my organization today, when I'm bringing on young people to come and work with me, I'm like, hey, you, you know, why are you asking me this? You, it's on Google somewhere. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Go find the answer. And the answer that works, especially when we're talking about people who are doing searches of processes or how do I do this on Photoshop or how do I do this on Premiere or how do I do this on a music program, whatever process is actually getting you to a successful outcome, that's the right one. And then also, you know, I have a bunch of kids that's looking for crack codes and, you know, uh, key gens. So whatever one is actually getting you to the desired outcome, that's the right one for you, even though there are so many different options uh, in the age of information for someone to actually find. So yeah. if you have meetings with giant tech companies, do you find it to be similar to the, the giant buildings that you found in the mid-aughts, you know, in the music business? Definitely totally different, I would say. To totally, totally different. I mean, uh, uh, I'm under NDA, uh, so I, I did go and talk to one of the you know top five largest technology companies in the world uh, when Superphone first started. And I would say that just their... First of all, for them to even take a meeting, they have to, they really take you seriously. And they are always thinking about how this will affect their ability to serve people. And I will say that the biggest difference between uh, the music industry meetings that I took in the you know early 2000s versus the meetings that I'm taking now in sort of the second and third decade of, of the 2000s is that technology companies for me at least the big ones that I've ever sat down with are always focused about, once again, service and value delivery, right? And um, I would say that in music 
meetings, music meetings have always been about like, yo, we're going to be the best. We're gonna, and I, I think there's some of that in technology as well. But, yo, we need to get this deal before anyone else because it's almost uh, music is almost commoditized, whereas a, a really great solution, the reason why there's a front runner in search the really great, great solution takes all. You know what I mean? There's a front runner. I mean, I don't know anyone else who's on some uh, alternate photo sharing platform than Instagram, right? right. But th for every Lil Nas, there's folks that are like, oh, I don't, I don't like Lil Nas. I, I prefer J. Cole. For every J. Cole, I don't like J. Cole. I like Kendrick. For every Kendrick, I don't like Kendrick. I like, you know, uh, I like I like whoever. Uh, well, I like uh, Meg Thee Stallion. You know what I'm saying? And so the that's, I think, the biggest difference is that um, I, I would say the music industry is almost like, uh, I, and the reason why I think there's such a great correlation between like music and fashion is because, you know, when you're talking about art and subjective art, then, you know, you just find your audience. And then that's why the big labels have to have sort of an aggregation of many different, many different genres under their umbrella because they know that each artist and each genre is going to attract a certain type of audience. And they know that they can have an ex almost an identical competitor. And so because of the number of people that live on the planet or live in the United States or wherever else it is, that, you know, as long as you're doing your job on behalf of the artists in, in getting the market share, you already have um, you already have built into your business model that you're only going to get some minuscule piece of the market share. And hopefully the aggregate of that market share will keep you in business in technology is like, yo, we're going to get the whole pie. So. I don't really, I mean, Google is a word, like it's in the dictionary. And so I don't, you know, I don't really, uh, I mean, I, I guess people search on Yahoo, but they'll still say I Googled it, right? right you know right. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, Shouts and what's, to the Bing hive. Yeah, yeah, straight up. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I would say like, you know, even, 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 even for photo sharing platforms, what other, like name three, right? You know, it's Instagram, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that winner takes all mentality, I think is also really attractive and powerful, um, to me, as I as I look at this next stage and phase of my career, and I would say that um, I would say that that's probably the major differentiator uh, between the meetings I've taken at at big technology companies, because there really is, you know, I would say yeah, maybe if we look at ride sharing, maybe there's seven or eight different options in New York. And then if we say, okay, if we look at New York rappers, how many options are there, right? Yeah, and right. so when we really talk about like a, 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 a tangible, measurable value proposition, um, I think my passion for music is now very much in full circle, the passion for music that my mother has or my father has where they just enjoy music for the sake of music. Mm. And the business of music for me is... Uh, so much less exciting by nature the fact that I already know that my music product, if I decide, oh, I'm going to be the greatest R&B artist, let's, let's say if, we, if, if someone, you know, or if the survey said that Frank Ocean is the greatest R&B artist currently existing, for every person that believes that, there's still someone that's like, I don't like his, I prefer. Or I don't know him. Yeah, I don't even know him. Yeah, right. Like, that's the crazy thing about all this stuff, right? That it's like, we're at a point now because we don't have the MTVs, we don't have that overlying, overarching, this is what you get <laughs> sort of thing. Like radio no longer plays a, a real role. So it's like there's 50,000 new songs uploaded every single day. Yeah. And so it's just like, how could you possibly be fans of anybody? 
And so it's just like, you know, you, you, you all get lost. Yeah. You know, even the biggest artists, a lot of people just don't know who they are. Yeah, for sure. Um, they know the song. Yeah. Sometimes, oh, I know that song. I don't know who sings it, right? <laughs> or I follow them on Instagram. I don't even know they make music. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, it's a very weird place that we're in. Yeah. Um, when you're having these meetings with, because even though like you, you don't have a taste for music business on its, you know, side or on its face or whatever it is. Right. You're still taking meetings with like Craig Kalman. I, I heard the you know the, yeah. the Breakfast Club interview, and so like you you just like it in a different way because yes, you yeah I do well mostly I like it in the way that I believe that uh, I believe that the art is so important, and so until we actually can crack the code on how to sustainably uh, empower artists to continue to create for their whole lives then we're always just going to be in this sort of hamster wheel rat race of recycling artists and you know because labels are a business so yeah. the artist isn't generating money like they can't really give you that attention that they have when everybody was excited when they first signed you you know what i'm saying and so that doesn't mean that that artist's contributions to culture are any less valuable they just have a different. Uh, uh, they just have a different relationship with their original investor or supporter. Yeah. So that's why, once again, I believe that the actual uh, metrics and the actual business and the actual uh, mathematics need to be shifted between the supporters and the and the actual artists. And that's why, once again, I reference Kanye when he says, "Yo, I'm looking for my Medici family, right?" Yeah. Because the bottom line is that, like, for Mozart and for and that's why you know I'm like Mozart. When, for mm -hmm. Mozart and for you know Beethoven, you know they had one fan, and that fan was the royal family. Say, yeah. "Hey, look, uh, coming up for Christmas time, I'm gonna need that play, yeah. and I'll pay yeah. you for the whole year for the play, right?" So yeah. I'm gonna need this symphony, you know, uh, commission for X, Y, and and so I think that, you know, I think that for me, I've been able to already by nature of the fact that I built my fan base in the way that I have and I have the kind of relationship that I do with them, that I have created that sort of uh, that sort of relationship with my fans, that they are the family for me that commissions the work and I'm able to just make the work whenever I want to. That's really um, But at the same time, though, uh, I'm I'm very fortunate in that I've been able to diversify. So for artists that just want to do art, it's even more important for them to actually build that family unit with their fan bases. And so, you know, I feel like uh, I feel like that's what I'm here to help to help folks do because I do love music. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I love music. So Atlantic can be your Medici or or Warner could be your Medici, but also the collective fans out there could be your Medici family. Well, I would say that, you know, uh, when someone is investing in you for a return, it's totally different than someone who's consuming your music. So when Atlantic is your Medici, they're investing for a return. Yes. They're going to give you an advance and they want to see a 10X on that advance. Right, right, or right. even they might be happy with a 2X or a 3X, right? Because it's almost like venture. You mm -hmm. know, one artist going to pay for all the other ones, right? Yep. Um, the, the flip side is that when someone uh, pays $40 for a ticket to my show, they're not like, yo, give me $80 back <laughs> in terms of the cash. Right. They want an Unless experience. Unless you're in like a the real feeling. like weird place. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like, you right. good? Right, 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 right. <laughs> but they, they want an experience, which is yeah. priceless. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's the beauty of like the scarcity of time, which is like, hey, look, on December 18th, you came to my concert. You could have been at the 
Khalid, you for know, sure. concert that was at the King's Theater. You yep. came to mine. You paid for mine. Hopefully, you got your money's worth. And when you have those kinds of like human experiences, which are fleeting yes. yeah. and which are w- w- literally once in a lifetime, then you want to make sure that that's really the return. But the return doesn't have to have a dollar amount associated with it. Now, let's be real. There will be, and I mark my words on this podcast, there will be a moment when, and I, you know, I'm talking to folks in Silicon Valley right now, where uh, the, the investment will come from the fans. And there have already been a couple of, of startups, and you, know, you guys were just talking about Leo. I saw that he invested in one called Tap Table, you know, and some of the guys that I was there, I'm listening to some of the meetings where they say, look, let the fans invest and they actually get a return as well. I always believe that's tricky, mm. right? Because, you know, maybe the fans are not sophisticated investors and maybe the artists are not sophisticated offerers of securities, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, you have to make sure that the platform is incredibly uh, transparent for folks that, you know, are like, hey, I'm going to invest in the next Ryan Leslie album and they actually consider it a real investment and then they are maybe unfamiliar with the odds of getting a return, right? Yeah, right. And so that's why I believe that the existing arrangement where someone just says like, look, I'm listening on Spotify over and over and over again and Spotify is paying Ryan for my engagement with their platform, I believe that that's why that has been the savior of the music industry right now because the value proposition has changed. It's no longer like, hey, I need to have this actual piece of plastic to put it in my CD changer. I need, and that's one of the reasons why when I, well, let me finish my sentence. I don't (laughs) want to just have this piece of plastic to put in my CD changer. I want the convenience of having an entire library at my fingertips, at my disposal, on demand. And so even though in 2013 I took every piece of music off of streaming services, once I listened to my Medici family, they were like, look, Ryan, we'll ride with you. You're making it actually inconvenient, though, when I have to download the record right. and then upload it to my Spotify. And right, then, you're the one person. Right, yeah. I can't actually share it. I can't put you on my playlist, etc. Yep. So I said, look, you know, I'm at a different place. I don't necessarily need to, um, you know, uh, sustain myself, pay my bills from you guys downloading my records. Let's make it more convenient. And so Spotify has done that on a on a, on a, a on an incredible scale and that has sort of that has begun to turn the tables on the economics of the music industry. Uh, but once again, for the individual artist that also changes the economics because the reason why Spotify is able to do that is because they're an aggregator of those 50,000 songs that are really did you say daily? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like it's crazy. Yeah. Um you know, so this is not actually the first time that we have met, and we met in like such passing that you would never remember. So yeah. don't yeah. feel bad. Um, but we were in the studio with you. I think it was also Big Crit. Well, no, what happened was we went to a. It was a Big Crit session down at Engine Room. This has got to be like a decade ago, right? Wow. It's, it's him. It's like Kendrick. It's. Uh, I remember a this. bunch of other people. I but you, you came through at six in the morning to start like your time. Yeah. And yeah, we were yeah. like, wow. Like that's yeah, I was some commitment. So dead tired. Yeah, because we had stayed there like all night because like we needed to talk to Crit about something, yeah. and we're such like dorks at that time that we were just like let's just like hide Play the wall, and then uh. at some point someone will notice us and realize they haven't spoken in six right. hours. By the way, they must now, be here for a reason. We fully understand like our value and our time, and we're just like we'll get in there, we'll say what we need to right. say, and get and the get hell out. out. Yeah, yeah. But you showed up at six a.m. Yeah, to start a session. I remember that session actually. That's pretty wild. You Do you remember the? Two guys by the, yeah, the yeah. door who didn't yeah. say anything. Okay, yeah. 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 Um, For sure. Before we get out of here, can you talk about um, 
your musical connection with someone like Fabulous. Like, mm-hmm. because, and I think there's so many people out there who really do want ultimately a project with just you two guys on it, right? Like one producer, one artist, and because you guys have made magic time and time again. Mm-hmm. What is it, where do you guys connect, even if it's not music, like when you're sitting there, or is it just like, Fab comes in, hears the music, gets it, and you don't need to sell him on it, sits there, does his verse, and then bounces. Mm-hmm. Like, what is your guys' working relationship like, and and what is the magic there? Yeah, I would say that uh, to actually try to categorize or 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 fully describe that magic uh, is, is, is a significant challenge, and I'll say why. So first and foremost, I would say that my first interaction with Fab was on a record called Used To Be, which was you know something that um, I, had, I had put together in my Harlem apartment, and Shiv was a huge you know uh, supporter and proponent of it. And he, I mean, I've always had this relationship where I have an open door policy for folks that wanna come and work with me, appreciate what I'm doing. So he came through and was like, oh, we're gonna put this on vinyl. And my manager at the time, Ed Woods, rest his soul, mm-hmm. uh, was mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, I'm cool with Clue, we're gonna get fab on this. And I remember this like it was yesterday. We went to the studio, Fab put his verse on there, and he said something like, I'm early as a rooster on a farm with a Jacob exclusive on the arm. Hmm. And I was like, yo, I don't like the rooster line. And he, was, <laughs> he just looked at me like, yo, bro, this is your first record. I just came off of XYZ singles. And you going to tell me you don't like the rooster line? Like, nah. And then, but you know what? He had the sort of... Um, Humility, like he didn't, he didn't, he couldn't come at me like that. But yeah. he just was like, "Yo, ride, just you know, just so you know, like that's the relationship I have. That's the relationship I have with my fan base, and they're looking for those kind of punchlines. So, like, you know, you 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 got to trust me on this." So he did. He he didn't take offense to it at all. And so it was from that moment that I was just like, "Yo, this is a this is a cool cat." And then you know, actually starting to hear that record on the radio for a little bit. And then when he came through on a uh, verse on Addiction mm-hmm. and he shot the video two times because for whatever reason, Cassie wasn't in that video. So I was like, oh, we got to do it this way. Then we're going to do another one. And he came, he showed up twice. Um, and then uh, you be killing them and, uh, you know, everything, every day, everywhere. Mm. And so, I mean, really, let's be real. Uh, there's only two or three or four you know, Fab Ryan Leslie moments. You know, there's everything, every day, everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's you be killing them, which most people associate really the fact I'm not on that record. And right. kind of that was like a beat that me and Cuddy had done. And then Cuddy wasn't actually doing anything with the beat. And Fab, uh, well, actually, Lenny S was going through some beats. And I remember actually recently it was like, was it Adrian Bailon song or was it Fab song or whatever? Yeah, yeah. But Fab, you know, he was like, "Yo, I like this or whatever." And I remember getting that call from Cuddy too, because I was out <laughs> in uh, I was out in uh, in in Bath, England, working on the Kanye sessions, and this that this record was blowing up in New York City. And I get the call from Cuddy like, "Yo, that's my joint, man." Like you know what I'm saying? And he actually had contributed to sort of the melody line and everything there. So we, you know, we because they out talked the, about that on Drink Champs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we figured out the we we figured out you know whatever needed to be figured out there but i mean really really when you think about like the fab ryan leslie moments they're really those moments have all been 
very serendipitous. So that moment where it's me, Fab, and Carrie in the studio is because we all just had adjacent rooms at Chung King and he just popped in. Uh, the moment with uh, You Be Killing Him really was just that, you know, Lenny S had the record and had me, oh, that, whose beat is this? Adrian Bailon's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Fab, Fab, oh, that's Ryan, you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, so. Started up? Yeah, started up. Started up was, that, that was a cardiac beat. So I really would just happen to be, I mean, that whole time was just a crazy time. That was the time when Kanye had wrote a tweet, written a tweet about banks. And I, you know, I think it was Don C or so. Oh, man, I never forget that, actually. I was going through a crazy breakup and it was my birthday. And Don C, you know, I'm sitting there like, dang, I just broke up. I'm sitting at home on my birthday and Don C uh, had shot an email like, yo, come through the come through Electric Lady. And so I'm like, oh, man, people know me for, you know, running around with, with you know, uh, with with just the greatest of the great in terms of just like tall, slim, inspirational muses. So I got to go get me a couple of those, show up at <laughs> the studio. On your birthday, yeah, after right, a right, breakup. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So I went, I, you know, I went, I, I feel like we went to dinner. We went to the studio. Um, the tweet had just happened. Uh, John Legend was in the studio. Cuddy was in the studio. Uh, Banks had sent something over. Banks and Fab had originally done started up, then sent it to Kanye because Kanye had written the tweet about Banks and was like, "Will you get on it?" And then Kanye was like, "I don't like the hook." And Swizz was in the studio, so Swizz was like, "Oh, you know they man." And so he went in the booth and did that. Then they went back, and then that was like that's how that record got made ridiculously serendipitous. Like I just happened to be there, so Kanye was like, wow. "Yo, you go do this." Wiz is going to do this. And then that's when we made Christian Dior Denim Flow. It was all in the same session right around that time. So we, we were actually just out in Seattle, right? We right. were on vacation out in Seattle and Vancouver. And we went to the Museum of Pop Culture, which was um, Paul Allen's museum, right? Oh, so wow. he's got all the old guitars. He's and, and Medici. And yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had, um, you know, huge, huge, huge rock fan, big Jimi Hendrix fan, right? Mm -hmm. So he's got the original board oh, man. from, from Electric, Electric Lady. And... The the literature on the wall said that like Jimmy only went there for like a three or four months or whatever before mm. his untimely demise, right? Right. But um, did you find magic in yes. Electric Lady? Yes. And do you believe in magic in different studios? I've one hundred percent. I'll tell you right now. I miss Chung King. Like I miss that that vibe, that session, the wood and the walls, the red room, the green. I mean. All of that, like I and the communal uh, yes, effect too yes, of people yes. being in different rooms, coming yeah. in into and each out. other. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, but you can't get. It's it, it is really nice to have a home studio, right? But to bring different talent in there and create that serendipity is just amazing. And so that's one of the, I would say that's one of the elements that I've always been envious of in terms of just the Miami and kind of LA communities because Sony Music Studios, I mean, when you look at all the videos that I was making, Sony Music Studios shut down, the Hit Factory shut down, Chung King shut down, um, and you know, people are recording in rooms and sending MP3s around, et cetera. But I will say this, like, you know, being at Chung King, that's the one time where like, it doesn't matter what I'm working on and next thing you know, John Legend is in the studio listening to gibberish and telling me I sh I need to put words on it. He's like, yo, I like this. It's very solid. You got to put words on it, you know, and me hearing that. And then I'm in the studio at Chunk King and then Drake comes in and it, just very, very early. And he's telling yeah, this me is before, before like, thank uh, me later. Yeah. yeah. And he's coming in saying like, yo, I had this dream. I'll never forget it that you and me did a song and it was the video and la da da. And I'm like. 
that's that's just the Chung King vibes, and so I definitely miss it. And I think that that may may be contributing to just um, you know uh, the 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 delta between the excitement that I had in studio then versus my creative process now, right? Sure. Yeah. My creative process now, I got a nice home studio. And yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. You know, well, real quick then, right. what is it about, you know, going to Bath, going to Paris, going to, like, Australia, wherever, like, Watch the Throne was made, yeah. the Mercer, whatever. Right. Um, that's a, a very, like, insulated experience, right? Yeah, well, you get, you you pick the collaborators. So yeah. I, I did that for Black Mozart. I, I was just like, yo, uh, I'm gonna, it's going to be me, uh, cardiac is going to be um, that was this, in Paris, cat, uh, in actually Austria, Austria, because you know it's Black Mozart. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, 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 of course. Austria, yeah, yeah. Right? So we went there, and um, you know, and and I said, yo, I'm gonna do an album in a week. But I, you know, for that, when you when you when you put a time frame, you need everybody focused, and you need all the rooms firing on all cylinders. I mean, I think Cardiac went in there and did like. 40, 50, 60, 70 joints in that week. And I just had my pick. Cause I was, I was like right there, you know what I'm saying? And you then weren't I, like, these are too many. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And I said, look, whatever you create that I'm not using, yo, go, yeah. go be great. And he's going on to have a, a ridiculously, I'm very proud to, you know, just have worked with him and, and Wonder Girl as well. Like yeah. these are people I flew out because I wanted them to be extremely focused yeah. for a short, uh, short period Super of time. Super prolific in like that, yeah. Yeah, short period of time, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's really, the, that's, that's really the upside of doing the insulated because you actually are creating the communal vibe because like when we went to Bath, it was me, it was S1, it was mm. Hove, it was B, it was no ID, it was Virgil, and so it was like family style. You really were at camp together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. By the way, so, shouts to S1 who listens to our podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Shout yeah. out to S1. Yeah, that's yeah, my sure. guy, man. Yeah. Um, and, and Mike Dean. And, you know Shout what I'm saying? Shout out to Mike Dean, yeah. another friend, yeah. So I, I would say like that, that whole vibe is you're actually, um, I wouldn't say artificially, but kind of artificially creating the collaborative, hey, you know that when you put someone in every room, that something's going on in every room, and you yeah. can just pop in and see what's popping. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Man. Well, listen, Ryan, um, we're, we're thrilled that you came up here and, and gave us this time, and we know how valuable that time is. And uh, salute to you for, for not only building something for you, but building something for a lot of artists out there who can really take advantage of specifically giving their audience what they want. And I think that's... That's a power move for, for you and for them. And you should feel really, really proud of that. And I hope your parents feel proud of that too. And yeah. man, you've, you, know, you may not have been a neurosurgeon, but you've gone about this <laughs> career in a very surgical way. So congratulations yeah. on everything and we appreciate you. Thank you, thank you. And obviously for anyone who's listening and I, I threw it out there before, textryan.com, leave me your number. I will text you back from that URL. So textryan.com, leave your number. And then once I text you back, tell me how I can help. And you know, I'll make sure that to the extent that's possible. I got 120,000 people in my phone right now, but the persistent ones that really want to win, I'm able to actually, you know, uh, differentiate that sort of hunger and passion and fire, and I want to be associated with people that want to win, so definitely reach out. Super dope. Thanks yes. so much. Salute. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real Jeff. People want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You're Jeff with the glasses. Together, we are It's The Real. No apostrophe. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called Waste Time with It's The Real. If people want to find out more about what's going on with us, Jeff, where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L. 
Newsletter.com. We've got a newsletter that you can sign up for. Is it newsletter time? Is it newsletter time? What a silly question when it's always <laughs> newsletter time. Well, where can you sign up? Ding dong. It's a <laughs> newsletter. Here it is. It's 30.com. There you go. Yeah. Um, you can also find us on all streaming platforms. I'm talking about Spotify. Yeah. I'm talking about Google. Yeah. I'm even talking about, about YouTube. Apple. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Apple. Yeah. But I'm really talking about Overcast. Oh. Big Overcast, man. It, listen, Jeff, it was raining so much in Seattle and Vancouver. It was overcast. The weather? It was Acast. Castbox. <laughs> All the casts. That's right. Yeah. Jeff, are we on social media? We sure are. <laughs> Go find us at Instagram at It's The Real and Twitter at It's The Real. Nice. And what about, Jeff, all those people who wanted a shout out today and who are their ideal guests for the year 2020? I'm glad you asked because I've got an answer. Okay. Just one. <laughs> Everyone wants one person. Yeah. And that person is... Kudian and Chike. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they want them on the podcast. They've already been on episode 140. Go check them out. What we gonna do, pod? Said Barack Obama, not for real, for real. I agree, Barack. Yeah. Barack, if you're listening, come on the pod. Come on the pod. I don't know what else you're doing. <laughs> listening to the baby. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Uh, Madera mismo, which means same Madera in <laughs> Spanish. Yeah. Said Lou Williams. The basketball player. The underground goat. Yeah. Madison Music said Russ. Chris Madison said Russ. The artist. Diego Urbina 12 said Schoolboy Q. That's uh, the artist. going to happen. He's, oh, oh, yeah. 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 yeah Schoolboy Q and Russ are both artists. Yeah. Spate Ghost. Yes. Doesn't really work. Yeah. It's, uh, it should be Space Ghost. But Spate Ghost says Aziz Ansari. We've had his brother yeah. and knees on the podcast. This is true. I've not had Aziz yet. Right. I think we can make it happen. There's Jeff. There's 12 months left. Young 2L. Leonardo Nocaprio. Great name. Says. Says Dope It's Dom, who I believe is Dom Kennedy. I would I would agree with that. Or a new Joe Budden interview. Okay, so one or the other. Or both. Okay. Do Dom and Joe. Right. Lindsay India, our girl, said Rodney Jerkins. Okay, the producer. And Raymaine said Remain. Right. Remain. Maybe it's it's like Remain, like the lettuce? No, like That <laughs> took me a second. Yeah. Said can Ari Lennox come back? Sure. Yes. Easy. Okay. Great. Here Check she is. right now. Um, LPDT991 The catchiest name on Twitter I think it's Daniel <laughs> It is Daniel Yeah His name is LP underscore DT991 Right Said Vince Staples Actually I want to hear Yo31 on this podcast See I like the way he said that It was like I definitely want Vince Staples this Vince Staples is my ideal guest Wait No Yeah wrong No It's actually Yo <laughs> Jeff anything else? Uh, yeah, here's a weird story. If anybody is still here, here's a weird thing. I was in my room, I was folding laundry. Yeah. And I hear this, like, clawing sort of sound from my ceiling. Your ceiling? I, yeah. I never hear clawing noises from no, my it's, ceiling. No, it's weird. I also don't hear clawing noises on my walls, but I don't hear clawing <laughs> noises from my ceiling usually. What did you think? I thought it was a mouse or a rat. And so... 
predictably freaked out. Wait, you, you, I, I texted the looked up. Well, yeah, first I looked up and I saw a, a hole coming through. And I was like, that's crazy. And I texted my super. I want to get, get the verbiage right. Yeah. Hold on. Hold on to everybody who's still listening to this. Actually, if you are listening to this, you should tweet us or Instagram us and let me know that you're still listening to this. Okay. I said, hey, Mike, something is clawing at my ceiling and seems to be breaking through. <laughs> and then three minutes later, I said, or I guess it's a screw because a screw came through. Who? Who the hell lives upstairs, number one? And what were they doing? Screwing a screw through their floor. How, how far what do they are floors separated? What do they need such a long screw for, Jeff? Who screws anything into their floor? <laughs> Why is there a screw in my ceiling? The things we need to find out for next week. As always, Jeff, not for real, for real. Who is screwing things into my ceiling? We'll see you guys next week. Brrrr.